Good evening to everyone. Glad that you are here. Uh, we don't have a, we have several passages we're going to be looking at tonight, so you may just want to have a Bible handy, and some of these will be up on the screen, and some may not, if you want to jot down some notes. But we are going to be going through some more responses to questions that have been uh, submitted. So again, I appreciate uh, you submitting those. While we're talking about submitting things, one more reminder that if you haven't gotten your form in, as you're a baptized member of this congregation that would like to uh, give us your nominations, the men that, that you'd like us to consider for elders. Uh, we encourage you to get that in tonight. I saw several of those and we're excited about that. So let's be praying about that. But tonight we're going to be dealing with three questions that have been submitted. The first one we're going to handle pretty quickly. The second one take a little more time with and the third take uh, the most time with. Not because the one at the end is more important, but just because of the nature of the question. So the first one that we have tonight, we're just going to go through them. It comes from Genesis chapter 6, verse 3. This question actually came in an email that I thought it would be worth spending a couple minutes on with, with everyone here. How do you explain Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, that says the lifetime of man will be 120 years, when Noah lived to be 950, and even later Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and others all lived many years more than 120. It seems that the 120 restriction wasn't put into effect until the time of Moses. It's a very good question. It's not. It's valid observation. Whenever you read through the text and you see that 120 number, and then you go over and you see, well, okay, wait a minute. It's telling us that not only Noah and his family, because this comes from right before uh, that, uh, but then even some of the ones later on, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the number that's given is is larger than that. Uh, I think that the, the best answer to this is that this text is not speaking of the lifespan of an individual. Rather, it is speaking of a countdown to the judgment of the flood. Now, that fits the context of Genesis chapter 6. It's telling us why the flood is coming, and it's about to get into the preaching of Noah in the preparation for the flood. The details of that planned judgment are going to be in that chapter. If you look at what it says in chapter 6, verse 3, then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Now, I highlight that because flesh is going to be a key to understanding this passage. It's going to come up again. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Now, I can see the temptation whenever we read that to be able to say, okay, well, now God is putting a cap on how long people are going to live. Uh, but that doesn't seem to fit the context the best here. Notice the uh, alternative that I think makes more sense here is as he's getting ready to introduce that the flood is about to come, rather than the text being talking about each individual being limited to a lifespan of no more than 120 years, another possibility is that this is saying that because the flood is coming, judgment is coming, man is also flesh, like other flesh that is going to be on the receiving end of this judgment, uh, he's going to have 120 years until that happens. Uh, now, that seems to fit later on in this passage. Genesis chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. The earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth. Behold, it was corrupt for all flesh. There's our term again. All flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Behold, I'm about to destroy them with the 
earth. So the fact that you see flesh mentioned there in the context of the judgment of the flood and flesh mentioned earlier in that chapter uh, would lead us to believe that this is not talking about an individual's lifespan, but it is more likely that it is talking about a countdown of how much time was left until the flood would be coming as a judgment on all flesh. I know that there is a remnant that is preserved, both of humans and of the animal life, uh, but it just in general terms, the Bible often does this, it'll make a general statement of the end of all flesh uh, has come before him. And so that seems to be most likely what's going on in Genesis 6 verse 3. Very good question. Let's go on to our second one tonight. This one's more of a cultural question than a biblical one, but it definitely ties into the Bible, so I thought it would be worth spending a few minutes on. I believe in 1945, 95% of the people believed and called on the name God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I believe in 2018, 40% of the people believed and called on the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. What changed? The Lord is the same today, tomorrow, and forever. What changed? Now, the question here is about a decline in professed Christian faith. Uh, and certainly the Bible shows us some patterns, especially if you study the history of Israel, uh, that there are patterns of some generations being more reliant on God, more faithful to God than others as a whole. So I do think that there is at least a biblical precedent for that. I don't want us to get to the conclusion that America or any modern day nation is the same as the biblical Israel. We need to be very careful about that. It was never meant to be. America is never meant to be the kingdom of God. Uh, there, there, no nation on this earth is. Uh, those are some different ideas that there's some interaction there. Hopefully the kingdom of God is influencing the kingdoms of this world, uh, but they are not one and the same. So we need to remember that no matter what a percentage may have been in the past of those who profess a Christian belief, that does not make something a Christian nation. Uh, that's really not a term that, that I am comfortable with, even if that is the majority of what is uh, professed. Now, the, the scripture reference here is from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, which specifically says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now that comes in the closing chapter of a book that is focused on Christians enduring what they're facing. Hardships, holding fast to their confession of faith uh, to the end. Uh, so there is some relevance there in this question. This question is about a decline in those who profess Christian faith. Let me say this though. Let's remember that not all those who profess Christian faith are genuine Christians. There always have been a lot of what I would call nominal Christians, uh, Christians in name only, who are not genuine followers of Jesus, especially if the cultural norm of the, the spirit of the age is one that is more accepting of Christianity, and not just accepting, but that is the expectation that you ascribe to this. Uh, maybe in past days, in order to even be elected to uh, an to public office or to hold a prominent position in a town, you would have to profess a Christian faith whether you actually believed it or not. And so we do need to take that into account. I think it's always easy to, to look back and, and say, well, 
the golden age of the past and then look where we are now. The past is never as glorious as what we think it is. We tend to remember selectively about things in the past. And so we need to remember that too. God knows the real number of those who were truly submitted to Jesus in 1945 and we're walking with him daily. And God knows that number today. But I do think it is fair to say that the cultural norm of professing faith in Christ has shifted some in America over the last few generations. It shifted in the Western world as a whole, even in years before uh, that. And don't think that this is all coming in the 40s or 50s or 60s or the 70s, 80s, 90s, whatever. Everyone wants to point, point to a particular time. Well, this is when it changed. Well, there's a lot of factors working all along. Some of this goes back to the 1700s, 1800s. Some of it goes back a long ways even before that uh, when you study patterns throughout history and the way people think and what is accepted. Now, I, I won't be able to answer all the why that this is, has happened, but I will give you a few factors that I think have contributed uh, to that. One is this. We live in a more global world than in past generations. Now, for the most part, that's a good thing. That's something that, that uh, I'm convinced that the Bible celebrates the fact that Christianity is something that is supposed to reach all nations. All people groups are supposed to be a part of it. Most nations in our world today, and this is just a cultural thing, but most nations have greater immigrant populations than maybe in past times. Uh, although America's always had a high immigrant population. Uh, so that the native populations, though, I would say, between that and some other factors, are more internationally connected than maybe we have been in the past. Global travel is much easier than it has been in the past. We also live in the information age where you can access things that are going on in the rest of the world. I say all that to say that people are exposed to more options when it comes to faith and when it comes to worldview than maybe they have been in some past generations. Now again, that's a very good thing for the sake of getting the gospel out into different parts of the world, including our own nation, uh, that there's a lot of good that comes with that, of people having greater access. You know, people will be able to listen to this online you know, by the time it's uploaded from anywhere in the world. And you can access a lot of other stuff. There's also, though, a lot of internet theology that goes on uh, where people are just pulling up the Wikipedia articles or other things that may not be the best sources, uh, but the ideas are out there. You know, we, we have exposure to the ideas, and then we are exposed to different faiths, not only in the information age, but even just you're going to find places of worship of faiths from all around the world, not just here, but other places of the world. It's just more international uh, than maybe in the past, it's more internationally connected. Now, those who identify as what some will, will call the nuns, all right, the ones who don't identify with any religion, they're either atheists or they're supposedly non-religious. Uh, it, it's more than it used to be. That's true. But it's still a small minority in comparison with those who profess faith of some kind. Um, you know, don't, don't let people convince you that the majority of people in America are now atheists. That, that's not the case. Uh, there is people still long for the spiritual. 
And you've seen this throughout history in societies that have even tried to outlaw uh, faith, religion, uh, have tried to eradicate the spiritual from their society. Some of the really hardcore Marxist societies that have tried to do that before. Uh, it doesn't work long term. Uh, people long for that. Uh, you try to, to take the, it creates a vacuum and people are going to turn to something. It may not be Christianity, but they're going to turn to something that involves the supernatural because otherwise uh, they realize that they, they really have got to have something to sink their teeth into. Um, so people still long for the spiritual. I would say that many in our part of the world, more so in the past, because we're more internationally connected and for other reasons, uh, it's, many have turned to Eastern religions, such as Hinduism, such as Buddhism, uh, such as New Age uh, variations of some Eastern uh, religions. Um, there are more who adhere to Islam in the U.S. and in Western nations than in the past. So some of, the, some of those things are some of the things that have changed culturally. Here's a second reason that I think goes along with that. Many people are also more nonspecific about their religious or spiritual beliefs. They will claim to be a spiritual person, and they may even have some kind of concoction of, of faith that they assert, but it's not associated with a particular organized religion. Now, that's a popular notion today. Well, I like God, I like spirituality, but I don't like the church, or I don't like uh, formal uh, anything, not just Christianity, but Islam or other things. And they say, well, I, ju I just want to find God in my own ways. Uh, now, that's part of a, a larger movement in the way the world thinks. Um, it's part of the postmodern age. The modern narrative in the past was that, you know, that there is a right way of truth, and you can know it, and you can know it for certain. Uh, I, th I think in many ways that that was abused and uh, in some ways that it was uh, wrong things were asserted as this is the truth and you shouldn't even question them. And as a reaction, what often happens is an overreaction. So that now the pendulum has swung to, well, can we accept anything as truth? The process is called deconstruction of the truth narratives. And Christianity has been included in that, where they say, well, look, look what the church has been responsible for historically. And they point out all these, these evils, and some of them very real, some real injustices that have been associated with some who profess Christianity in the past. And they say, well, look at this. This is where religion leads. And these are some flaws that I see in it, some holes in it. And so I'm, I'm going to throw that out as the truth narrative. They don't just do that with Christianity. They throw out all, all these. If you can deconstruct enough of the truth narratives, then you end up with the relativistic narrative, which is basically your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. Well, you go your way. I'll go my way. And that's more of the zeitgeist of the world that we live in now. That's more the way that people uh, have thought. And often, if you make a truth claim, such as the Christian faith, such as we talked about this morning, if you believe that Christianity is unique, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that he was raised from the dead, uh, that you make those types of claims, the world that we live in today, many will claim that as narrow and as exclusive, and they equate that with being bigoted toward those who believe differently. And so that's another thing uh, that uh, we face in our world, another factor. So it's easier, I think we would admit, to not get labeled as those things, to not get labeled as a bigot, to not get labeled as narrow. Uh, it's easier just to choose some vague idea of spirituality without a specific faith. 
I think that's another factor working here. I will say a third factor that is always at work, uh, but more so since the, in past generations, and that is that the ethical standards of Christianity are not easy. They never have been. And let's not pretend that all people back in 1945 are living by those, okay? But uh, let's also acknowledge that, especially on the sexual front, the sexual revolution of the 1960s and 70s, and then some of the fallout of that in generations since, uh, has, has done a lot to undermine, at least in the culture at large, the biblical view of, of sexuality and of sexual ethics. Um, sex, the biblical view of sex as a covenant exchange between a man and a woman in a marriage. A lot of that's been undermined. And again, if you ascribe to that, many now will want to equate you with being a bigot, with being narrow. And uh, it's a lot easier to, to not be called that. And so many people are trying to disassociate themselves from that, from traditional orthodox historical Christian beliefs on that issue and on other issues. Uh, the Bible uh, presents a life following Jesus that is not easy. And in some ages, uh, it's even tougher. Okay, but not all is lost. I don't want this to come across as gloom and doom. I think that's a temptation for us. One good thing about Christianity becoming less the official norm is that it weeds out a lot of those who, are, who in the past may have just been those who profess a faith, but they don't really live by it. If it's not the cultural expectation, if it's not the cultural norm, uh, then you're not going to get as many people who just say this just to go along with the crowd. If that's not where the crowd is headed, uh, it, it actually may help differentiate those who truly hold to this. It's going to be more of a risk to you to state that you believe in Jesus Christ and that he is the way, the truth, and life, that you believe uh, the Bible's teachings on, on money and the Bible's teachings on sexual ethics and uh, the Bible's teachings about anything uh, is going to be more of a risk to your reputation, to your status in the eyes of the world than maybe it has been in some past generations in this part of the world. So again, I'm, I'm convinced historically the church was much stronger when it was not in the majority position. You go back and you look at the history of early Christianity. When the church gained a position of power, it largely turned into the Roman Catholicism that in many ways resembled the structure of the Roman Empire. It conformed to the world rather than transforming it. The kingdom of God needs to look different than the kingdoms of the world. So in some ways, let us be thankful that God may be using this age uh, to weed out some of those uh, who are not serious about their commitment. And one more thing to consider is this. Even though the numbers of professing Christians in the Western world are down, the numbers in the world as a whole are up. And that's good news. The numbers of professing Christians on the continents of Africa and Asia, especially, uh, have grown tremendously in recent uh, generations. The geographical center of Christian faith in the world, if you put up the numbers of those who profess Christian faith in the world, um, it's shifted to Africa. Now that troubles some of us who like to be at the center of that. Uh, but Christianity has seen geographical shifts in the past. Uh, it's shifted to different places, and that's one of the reasons why uh, it, it shows that it's not just a cultural religion. It's not just a religion that's, that's aimed at a particular people group and just grows out of a particular people group. Uh, it is meant for all nations because uh, it has grown in among 
pe- different people groups all around the world throughout its history. It's historically been the religion which has incorporated the most diversity of peoples. So while we are concerned, the church will be okay. Okay? Uh, Jesus says, tells us clearly that the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The church will be okay. It always has been, even in times of trial. Let's move on to our last question, and that is tonight, when we talk about orphans and widows from James 1, verse 27, this is a text that we've been studying in our class led by Brother Stan recently. Can you expound on our responsibility to orphans and widows as stated in James 1, verse 27? Are these orphans in the church family only? Widows of the church family? If our local congregation has no orphans, should we as individual Christians be seeking to support someone who is fostering kids or Christian-based adoption agencies? Is this our Christian duty? Okay, several things going on here. Let's look at this verse first off. James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. That's the New American Standard Translation. I would probably translate this differently than what most of the translations do. Let me show you a couple of things that are significant about talking about the the words in here. If you see the the this, uh, that is part of that, uh, the this right there. Pure and undefiled religion inside of our God and Father is this. Now that this is there, it's singular. It does not say these and then give us two items. But there are two infinitives that are attached to this later on. So that's going to be to visit and then over here to keep. These are both attached to this. So they are meant to be connected. These are not separate ideas. These are, these are intertwined. They are together. Uh, furthermore, there is no conjunction of and in the Greek text. Uh, that, that was just added by translators to, make, to try to help it make more sense. I think a more accurate translation of this, really what the meaning is, is to visit orphans and widows and so doing to keep yourself unstained by the world. This is keeping yourself, keeping oneself unstained by the world. In this context is to visit orphans and widows in their distress. That's really what the text is, is getting at uh, rather than just giving you two different ideas. Now the next thing that's significant here is let's zoom in on this word to visit. Now I don't know about you, whenever I see visit, I immediately jump into you show up, you say hello, Quick, hey, goodbye, I'm out of here. Okay, now sometimes that is, that's what people need. They don't need uh, you to spend a whole lot of time uh, with them. That may be the need in the, in the moment. Someone's facing real sickness, they may not have the energy to have a visitor remain for too long. However, this word we, we need to talk about a little bit to see what it really is getting at. I'm not going to put all these scriptures up here, but I want you to listen to some of this if you're jotting down any notes. This word goes beyond just making an appearance, the way that it's used in the Bible. It's ultimately a shepherding or overseeing word. It comes from the same root as the word episkopos, which is the word for overseer in the scriptures. Uh, so those who are serving in a position of, of an elder, an overseer, a shepherd, need to pay special attention to this. But really, this is not just directed to them. This is directed to all Christians. So this is something we are all involved in. But it is a shepherding, a pastoral ministry that it is speaking of, which should tell us a little bit about it already. It means being invested in people. 
paying close attention to them. Some other places where it is used in the scriptures. In Luke chapter 1, it is used twice by Zechariah, who is the father of John the Baptist. He says in chapter 1, verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. Later on in verse 78, he's going to say, The sunrise from on high will visit us. Now that's talking about this idea of not only his son John being born, but as a forerunner for Jesus Christ coming to visit his people whenever he was born among them. Jesus Christ did not just show up in the clouds and wave to everyone and then go back into heaven. His form of visiting was, it's an incarnational idea of really identifying with the people that you were trying to work with, uh, becoming, uh, coming among them and investing yourself in them. Of course, Jesus goes all the way through the cross with how much he invests in the people that he loves. But it is an incarnational term. It's word becoming flesh or words becoming actions in the application to us. Now, there's a really significant passage later on in Luke. Luke chapter 7, verse 16. This, passage, this word is going to be used in the context of Jesus visiting a widow. It's the same word. What does he do in that text whenever it, the people say that God has visited us when Jesus does something for this widow? Well, he takes a widow who has just lost her son and he raises that son from the dead to restore that family relationship. Now you may say, well, what application is that to us? That's Jesus. He can raise the dead. I don't have that ability. No, but you do see a principle there that to visit is not just to show up and and wave at someone. It is to do what is within your power to be able to restore relationships, to be able to restore what is right in someone's life. That's the whole idea of what justice is. That's why the idea of doing justice to widows and orphans is used so much in the scriptures. It's doing the things that you can do to help set their life back in order and try to right what has been wronged in their life, even if it's not someone who's at fault for the wrong. To do justice to an orphan is to try to restore a sense of family uh, for that orphan. And so that is this idea of visiting. Uh, that is used there. Now there's a lot of other places that that that's used. If you want to get some of those for me later on, you can, but for time's sake, we're going to go on to what else is talked about right here. Here in James, the message is to be invested in them, especially in their time of distress. The question then comes in though, uh, well, what does that mean? Which widows, which orphans? How do, we, how do we sort through this and how are we to be involved uh, with them? Is this just those who are in your local church family? Is it just those who are in the body of Christ at large? Or does it include those of the world, those who may be outside the church at the moment? Well, let's talk about that a little bit. Whenever this, a question like this comes up, I always apply the benevolence and service principle that we have in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. I know this is another book. I know I've talked about this some in the past. But I think it's a very important principle when we're talking about either benevolence or service. Those ideas are intertwined in the Bible. We may consider benevolence more of meeting a financial need, service meeting more what we do in action for uh, somebody. But both of those ideas are involved uh, when, it, when the Bible talks about these types of things of reaching out to others. While we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Now what is the principle here? The principle is that 
we do good to all people. But there is a priority that is given. If you have to prioritize, and with our time, and with our money, and with our energy, we do have to make prioritization decisions sometimes that we are to especially, first and foremost, uh, look for the needs of those who are already of the household of the faith. However, we do not exclude trying to also do good to those outside the church. So it's just a principle of doing good to all people, especially those of the household of the faith. Now plug in there the words, let us do good to all widows, especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Let us do good to all orphans, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, those bring up a couple of issues when we talk about that. The situations with reaching uh, widows, reaching orphans, are a little bit different from each other. Let's spend a few minutes exploring this. Let's talk about widows. A couple of places where the Bible... Uh, spend some time uh, with widows and you have an example of organized efforts, organized collective efforts uh, to see after widows. One of them is in Acts chapter 6. This is in the stages of the early church in Jerusalem and you have a certain group of widows who are being neglected in the what's called the daily service of food. So there's an organized effort to take care of some of the material needs of those who are in a position of being very vulnerable. Let's remember that well, widows in this time period that we're talking about, widows can always be in a vulnerable position emotionally. Uh, certainly they can be financially. They especially would have been financially in this time that we're living in. We're not living in a culture that had some form of social security or of uh, a pension from their husband's job or, or something else. You know, they were pretty much at the mercy of those who were around them to help them. Uh, so in Acts chapter 6, you see an organized effort to administer to the needs, the material needs even, of these widows. Now here's what the text is going to say. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily service of food. Now in this particular context, we ask, okay, are they looking at taking care of the widows in the church or even the widows of the world around them? I'm convinced that in this context, the focus is on the widows who are already part of the church. Uh, that, the fact that it tells us while the disciples were increasing in number is a clue that should tell us this. This is a part of a collective effort that the church is coming together and is trying to meet the needs of these widows even on a daily uh, basis. Now here's the next text where we find some information about a collective effort. As Paul is writing to Timothy in his work with the church at Ephesus, but there are some principles here that should apply to all our local churches. If you read through 1 Timothy 5, and we won't read through that whole text tonight, but you're going to find an official list or register that is given there, instructions of those who will be what the text may call truly widows, those who will be in an official way will receive an ongoing financial support from the local church. Now there are some limitations placed on those who are on a, the official uh, list, the register of those. Even though Christians are called to be radically generous, the resources of the church that the church will make use of will be finite. There will be some limitations on that. So priorities have to be made through discernment of greatest needs. Anyone who has worked in making benevolence decisions, especially in a small church, but even with a large church, you know that you have to, to have some limitations in what you, what you can help with and what you can't. 
But here are some of those that are, that are given about caring for widows in 1 Timothy chapter 5. The ones who are prioritized, uh, that should be on that register that the church is giving uh, ongoing uh, support for, are one, those who do not have other support from their biological family. Right, that's an important principle there. Children and grandchildren have the primary responsibility for a widow. Jesus even mentions that in his teachings. The scenario where that may be different is if the biological family has very little or no means to do that, or if that family refuses to do so, and that family may not be part of your local church. They may be outside of the realm of discipline of the local church where you can't just go to so-and-so whose, whose dad just passed away and say, okay, it's your job to, to take care of your mom if so-and-so is not part of your local church and doesn't even live by the Christian standard and he refuses to do so. Well, what do you do then? Well, the principle is that that's a situation where the church would step in and would try to help. But the ultimate, the first responsibility does come to the biological family. Now, the next criteria of emphasis that's put there, those who are elderly. Now, there is a certain age that is given. The text gives an age of those at least 60 years old. Gives some reasons for this. Maybe we can talk about that some other time. But they are given priority. And then the, the last one that's given there is those who have demonstrated their Christian faith in action. The characteristics are given there, but they all have to do with faithfulness to a husband and service to others. So I think what we can conclude from these two texts is that the collective efforts of a local church, at least biblically speaking, they're directed toward widows who are already in the body of Christ. Does that mean that a church can never give anything to a widow outside the church? Absolutely not. But a systematic, ongoing support, this register idea is limited only to Christians and to those in genuine financial need without the proper support from their own biological families. Let me say this before we move on to orphans. There are many ways to do good to, to widows, all widows, not just to the household of the faith. When we talk about uh, this is not just financial support, uh, there are other things that, that you can do. Maybe you know... Uh, have a neighbor who is a widow, maybe even an elderly widow. One of the best ways to create an opportunity to share the gospel uh, with her, uh, or if it's a widower with him, uh, is to, uh, to bring food over sometimes, or to offer uh, to, to mow her lawn, or to give her a ride somewhere, to build a trust uh, with her. You can eventually even offer to give her a ride to the church assembly and back. There are many other ways which a widow may be in need. So there are many ways to apply this principle of doing good to all men, visiting widows in their distress, giving them support. But I would say the application of James 1.27 to visiting widows is that both collectively and individually, we do have obligations to help widows. We should be looking for opportunities to do that. Let's go on and talk about orphans briefly tonight. I realize I'm covering a lot of stuff. But let's talk for just a moment about this. When we come to orphans, the nature of orphanhood is a little bit different. Simil similar in that there is a loss of family that the family unit that God intends uh, ha is experiencing some brokenness in some way. So there's a similarity between widows, between orphans. Often there's, there's an age difference would be one of the major differences when we talk about this. But there are some other differences. The nature of orphanhood, when we talk about the question of are we just focusing on the orphans of our local church, 
Well, the nature of orphanhood means that you're not going to have too many situations where you have orphans who are already part of the church family unless someone is looking to support them in order to bring them into the church. I would say that most care, the majority of care for orphans, whereas the majority of care for widows may be in reach, those who are already part of the church, the majority of care for orphans by necessity is an outreach. Uh, it is reaching out. Now, sure, there is the scenario where you already have a family who's part of your church, and let's say that if they have a couple of kids and you know they're, they're out on a date night this week and they get into a car accident and pass away the parents are they leave leave orphans then you have orphans in your local church let's say that they uh, are going to be taken in by a family member uh, but that family member does not have much of financial means to that would it be proper for a church to help support a family who's going to be taken in the orphans absolutely it would be that would be a way to visit the orphans what if they don't have uh, other biological family that's willing to take them in or those who are in a position to do so Well, visiting orphans, if we want to really take what this text means, to be invested in them, that would be a situation where someone in that local church would need to step up and try to to go through the legal channels to make it happen, to show a willingness to take those kids into their home so they could still be part of that church, could still have a Christian family. This really requires us to go the extra mile to look here. But the scenarios that I've given you there are unlikely. They are somewhat rare. However, orphans are not rare. UNICEF estimates that there are about 153 orphans worldwide. 153 million orphans worldwide. 153 million. That is a staggering number. You add to that... to the lack of a mother or father. You add to that the poverty conditions many are living in. You add to that the prospects of being used in certain places by warlords as soldiers or by pimps and sex trafficking or by other powerful people in begging scams who kidnap orphans. They intentionally maim them with injuries that they will put them out to beg where the injury will be visible so that they can make money that the orphan will never see. There are some who will kidnap orphans and will sell them as part of an adoption scheme to others who are wanting to to adopt internationally. There are all kinds of ways that orphans are some of the greatest victims of injustice in our world. I recommend uh, a book on this, not only on understanding the situation that orphans are facing, but on ways which you can get involved with them. It's by uh, a guy by the name of Johnny Carr, C-A-R-R. It's called Orphan Justice. That's a very good book to give you a little more information on this as far as being aware. What do we do, though? Very briefly, one of the suggestions from one who submitted this question was was, uh, twofold. Uh, It was this. Finding, and I agree with it, finding a Christian family who is fostering kids and offer to help. Now, that help may include some financial support if that's what's needed. But sometimes the greatest need is for you to offer to help be a mentor to one of those kids. Offer to be a big buddy to one of those girls, to one of those boys. Spend time with them. You may want to offer to watch the the kids one night so that the foster parents can go out and have some time to themselves, to give them some relief. That's another way to help them in that way, a way to visit orphans, to be involved with them. Even if you don't feel you have the financial means, there are other ways to, to find a way to help. If a Christian family you know has adopted, offer in whatever way that you can. 
And if you don't know anyone personally who is adopted or is fostering, either offer to give support to a Christian-based adoption or fostering service, or find a reputable foreign mission work, which is involved with housing, feeding, and educating orphans in their country. Uh, There are many of these. You can talk with our brother Gerald here about a specific one in Haiti that I've talked with him about. You can talk with our brother Jay Young. You can write him or call him about the work that's going on with with orphans in Ukraine. Uh, There are so many uh, who are suffering in the world in this way. But it's not just international. We need to take a look around us and see in our own communities there are ways to get involved. So yes, to come back to the original question, is it our Christian duty? I think James 1 verse 27 is clear. We may debate the the how, how we go about that, but it is clear that visiting, being invested in orphans and in widows is a huge part of who we are as the people of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the chance to talk about your word tonight. We pray for the application of it in our lives. May we be convicted uh, to be servants this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight, if you're struggling with something in your life that we can pray about, or if you'd like to talk about becoming a Christian tonight, submitting to Jesus Christ, naming him as your Lord, being baptized into him for the forgiveness of your sins, if you have a need, please come as together we stand and as we sing.